I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, whether an entrepreneur, politician, or parent, there are some decisions in life that will define us and who we'll become. So what's the best approach? I use the metaphor of being a tourist. Some tourists make an intense itinerary to the to the hour, where they're going to be, how long you're going to spend in this museum, and they, they want to make sure they see everything. And a different attitude is to be, you know, the French word is a flaneur. I'm going to explore. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to find what speaks to me. I'm going to to taste before I decide in advance what's best for me. And later, how can projecting regret help us embrace uncertainty, possibly even failure? The regret minimization tool is about embracing that you're going to feel weird, that you're going to be stressed, and fast forwarding yourself to an age. You could do at age 80. I mean, that's what Jeff Bezos actually did. But you can even do in five years, what will I be sad that I didn't try? Navigating life's wild problems and challenges. That's all ahead on Life Examined. When it comes to making those big life decisions, we're often racked with uncertainty. Algorithms and apps analyze data and tell you how to beat the traffic, what books to buy, what music to listen to, and even who to date. But if you're single, for example, getting married or having children can be daunting. And when it comes to careers, what job or assignment we take can define who we are and what we'll become. Making a list can help clarify the pros and cons, but how can we evaluate something for which we have no real first-hand experience? Who we aspire to be may change over time, and a meaningful life may not always follow the conventional roadmap. Economist and author Russ Roberts navigates the decision-making when it's hard to crunch the numbers. In his latest book called Wild Problems, a guide to the decisions that define us, he argues that life is less like a problem needing to be solved and more like a work of art. Russ Roberts is the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Russ Roberts, welcome to Life Examined. Great to be with you. Uh, First off, I'd love to just discuss this idea of what a wild problem is. I, I love that term, but maybe you can tell us just a little bit more about what it means. A wild problem is a problem where the usual techniques of data or evidence are not so helpful. A lot of times when you have a decision to make or we face a problem, we say to ourselves, oh, I just need some more information and more data. And for many problems, that's useful. Uh, For wild problems, that's more of a form of procrastination because in these kind of problems, the usual techniques of rational analysis and algorithms and the other tools of modern life that we've become accustomed to really aren't that helpful. And in fact, I suggest they often mislead us. These would be decisions like whether to marry, whether to have children, how many children, where to live, what kind of career you want, what kind of friend do you want to be? These are not problems that are easily solved with an app, for Mm. example. And there are many parts of our lives, I call these tame problems, where an app really helps. What should I watch for a movie this Saturday night? What kind of restaurant would I enjoy if I like sushi? We have all kinds of tools to help us do this in very thoughtful and data-driven ways. So what music would I like to hear next? Amazing. We have such glorious uses of technology, but those are not really helpful when we turn to what I call wild problems. Mm. You were trained, as many others, in the world of, of economics, and you talk about a lot of other folks that were too. Why... Um why does economics claim to give us answers to almost anything, but, but it often leads us astray for these wild problems? When I went to graduate school in, um, in the 70s in, at the University of Chicago, I was taught that the economic 
results that we derived from our theories were actually, I try to, I try to say this with a straight face now, they were uh, the rule for a rational life. Um, they weren't just about what to buy and, and what services to use uh, or how you might spend your, um, your scarce income. They were about how you spent your time, which is even more valuable, one might think, than, than money. And it was about more than just what you bought and sold or, or the services you used. It was about bigger decisions. And in theory, you can cram life decisions like the ones we're talking about, marriage, children, and so on, into the models that I was trained in as, a, as an economist. And my claim in the book is that you can do that. It's just not that helpful. Um, the standard economics tool that people are trained to use is called utility analysis. It's a really bland and seemingly inoffensive idea that there's some things you care about and there's some things you don't, and they have different prices and you should act accordingly. You should buy the things you like and you should buy more of the things you like, especially when they're cheap, and fewer of the things you like when they're, they're expensive. So that's okay. That gets you part of the way. But how do you think about things like what's it mean to be a father? Or do I want to become a husband? Or what is the obligation that I owe my parents as they get older? Or what kind of career do I see for myself? Should I try to make the most money or maybe have the most meaning? And I suggest that for many things in life, these decisions that, that are wild problems, uh, the standard tools of economics aren't really well equipped to help you deal with them. And if you cram the economics you cram them into the economics models, you're going to be misled because you're mm -hmm. going to find it harder to take account of the deeper, uh, more important things such as meaning and purpose and less about pleasure and pain. Economics is pretty good at pleasure and pain, mm -hmm. not so good at meaning and purpose. Yeah. This is to me is that's just an interesting way to look at, at what humans are, but also sometimes I think what we wish we were. And, you know, the advancement of, of economics and math and, and the whole STEM fields, it, there's this temptation to really see the human condition as just a series of math problems or more mechanistic where we become computers after a while. And I think you're kind of getting to the temptation to do so and also the pitfalls of going down that path. Yeah, we have all this data and it's very exciting and it can help us understand a lot of things about what we might enjoy or not enjoy. So I don't, I don't want to suggest that, that big data is not powerful. In many cases it is. But inevitably there are things in life that can't be quantified. That doesn't mean, by the way, that economics has nothing to say about those things. It's just that you shouldn't be naive about what the results are and how limited those results are when you're applying economics or analytical tools from mathematics or engineering or optimization to problems of the human heart. And the temptation to do so is so large. It is so gratifying to think that there's an answer. We have such a craving for certainty. Right. And the idea that there are many problems in life that are not easily solved or there's no necessarily best answer or right answer uh, makes us really uncomfortable, I think, in modern times. In olden times, I think it was kind of understood that there were lots of things we didn't understand. But in modern times, that seems an affront. When I tell someone that their methods are flawed, they say, well, we just need better data. It's just a matter of time. And I think that's the other part of the modern mindset. Uh, so many things have fallen 
into our into our uh, understanding. We we figured them out. We know how to put a person on the moon. We know how to uh, improve the amount of uh, chips we can put on uh, the amount of processing we can put into a computer or into a chip. Uh, we've improved how many songs we can squeeze into our phones, and it just gets better and better and better. And it feels like, well, there's no limit. And I'm suggesting that there are parts of the human experience where these techniques are not really appropriate. Mm. And worse than that, they lead you astray. They lead you to think that you're moving toward a better answer, the best answer, when in fact you're not. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in what you said about maybe what life was like in Mm. some of these earlier eras where you had no choice but maybe to sit with questions or to sit with mystery. And then my mind goes, well, I mean, that was a a, a primary function of religion too, or looking to God or looking to these different spiritual practices um, when you weren't so awash in big data every day. Well, I think there's a couple things there. You know, I talk in the book about a lot of these decisions weren't decisions in ancient times. Mm ancient being 1940 (laughs) and before maybe, or 1955 and before uh, everybody wanted to get married. It wasn't, you might not be able to, but it wasn't a decision. You didn't just think about, I wonder if I should try to get married. Everybody wanted to get married. Once you're married, you didn't say, should I have children? Everybody had children who could. It was understood. It was the default. It was in the water. It was a norm. It was what was expected. It was our culture. We live in a time now where these are not decided the way they once were. They're up for grabs. So that's the first thing. And I think that's, uh, and that includes, by the way, your profession. You know, through most of human history, you didn't get to pick what you were going to do. You were a farmer and that was it. Mm -hmm. Or if you got a little further into human history, you were what your parents were, whatever that was. You're in the same guild as your parent, as your father, your mother. Uh, Your mother probably didn't have, wasn't in a guild. So your choices were extremely limited and your decisions were very limited. Life was much more constrained your choices were circumscribed in all kinds of ways by culture, by law, uh, through uh, religion and other and other forces that, that acted on people. So the first thing is to observe is that in modern times there's a remarkable uh, freedom, which is glorious, but uh, somewhat unsettling, I think, for for many people. But the the other point you make, I think, is is a is a fascinating one, which is the the role of religion in thinking about mystery. Uh, I think. Many people who are not religious think that religious people have all the answers, think they have all the answers. Mm-hmm. There's no uncertainty. There's no doubt for a religious person. A religious person has faith, and therefore they know that God exists. They know what God wants of them and so on. And for me, I, I happen to be an observant Jew. Uh, for me, uh, I follow religious practice, but I don't have a lot of certainty and I don't see religion as a way of relieving me of the mysteries and the uncertainty that, that is the nature of life. In fact, it's the opposite. For me, my practice of religion is how I think about the things I don't understand, the mysteries that are profound. And I think those mysteries, the things, the questions we do not have answers to yet and may not ever have answers to, those questions are um, what often gives life its deepest and most resonant uh, feeling of, of, of being alive, uh, this a sense of, of imminence and transcendence that, that is often felt in, in, a, in very powerful human moments, in moments out in nature. Uh, and for me, that mystery is, uh, it, religion plays a powerful role for me in helping me um, interact with that. 
Well, I think that even even in our modern times of of big data and wanting to be more on the rational side of the rational animal, um, there were a lot of really famous thinkers. Darwin, who you write about, comes to mind that were trying to come up with answers to big questions like should I get married or should I have kids, and uh, were applying uh, maybe the same kind of um, economic principles we would apply now. Maybe you can use him as an example of somebody trying to figure it out, but maybe uh, going a bit astray. A standard technique in decision-making when you can't decide what the right thing to do is, is to make a pro-con list, a cost-benefit analysis, a plus-minus list, different names for it. Um, not a bad idea. It's a good place to start. Right. Uh, you should list what you think are going to be the good things that come of, of a decision and the not so good things or the bad things. And Darwin does that when he's 29 years old, he's trying to decide whether to get married. When he makes this list, it's pretty clear it's, it's a bad idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, the, the negatives far outweigh the positives. And most of the negatives are about the social obligations he's likely to incur from having a, a wife and children, uh, spending time with her family, being depressed if the kids or children are sick or or worse, die, in which they actually, uh, some of Darwin's children did die. He eventually does get married and has children. But when he's 29, he looks ahead into the future and thinks, well, this is not going to be a good, pleasant thing. I'm going to have all these obligations. I'm going to have a lot of heartache. My children have bad health. And um, I'm not going to be as good a scientist because I won't have as much time. I'll have to be shuttling around to the, mm-hmm. to the relatives and... Uh, my wife might not like London. I might be stuck in the countryside. And, of course, that all happens. He has children. Some of them die. They're often sick. Uh, his wife doesn't like London. <laughs> he ends up in the countryside. Uh, but it does turn out to be one of the greatest scientists of all time. So it works out pretty well for him. But if he had followed what his cost-benefit analysis looked like, his pro-con list, he would have rationally decided not to get married. So why did he get married? And what, what's going on there? How could a great scientist make what appears to be an irrational decision in the calm, sober, somber uh, light of, of contemplation? And he looks at head to marriage and thinks, bad deal. And he does it anyway. Was he irrational? And I suggest he wasn't irrational. He, he realized, presumably, that his, his pro-con list did not capture everything there was to know about marriage. And of course, it certainly did not. He had no idea what it was like to be a married man. He he had probably married some married friends, but as I suggest in the book, most married people uh, don't like to talk about their marriage. And uh, if they did want to talk about it, they probably would have difficulty putting it into words what it's like to be married. Similarly, to be a parent. And so Darwin is in the dark. He he doesn't really have much of an idea of what he's getting himself into. And in fact, most of the things that he's able to foresee are negative. And yet somehow he realizes that it's not the full story. And he, in his journal, he talks himself into marrying even despite the the list that he has made. And um, I think he probably made the right decision. Uh, perhaps it's not easy to say, but he certainly was right to realize that his pro-con list, which is not a bad thing to do in certain circumstances, He's not very helpful in this mm-hmm. circumstance. And I suggest, you know, he, um, the negative of, um, of uh, let's say, uh, excuse me, the positive of having someone to chit-chat with, uh, something, someone on the couch when you come home to, which he mentions 
and he adds better than a dog anyway. Right. Like the most um, inspiring uh, vision of married life uh, or of women that uh, one would hope for from a great scientist. But he, when he looks at that, that positive on the other side is might not become the greatest, maybe the greatest scientist of all time. How do you think about that? How do you weigh those things? It's almost ludicrous. And so he doesn't have that. He doesn't doesn't try to do that. He doesn't even make it put make it on the put it on the list. And I also point out he doesn't think about what it's like to live with another person. That that might be deeply rewarding because he has no idea what it might be like. So my, my my claim is that many of these problems of life, which are not unimportant, and there's only maybe a, a handful of them in our lives, uh, they set our destiny. They define us as to who we are, who we can become. And to think about that in cost-benefit analysis is um, there's something sterile and uh, enfeebled about it, I, I would argue. Mm -hmm. This reminds me, and bear with me for a second as I explain it, we did a show um, not so long ago with a great science writer, Ed Yong, talking about animal senses, how, uh, how it's almost impossible to know the way another animal sees the world because they have all these incredible ways of doing so. But we can get there almost through a leap of imagination. And that's sometimes what it takes. And, and I say that now in the sense that how does one make a decision about having kids if they've never had kids or they can't imagine the reality in which they have kids or they're trying to make a decision about getting married as, as Darwin was doing, which was from kind of an egocentric single person perspective. Mm -hmm. So there, there is this kind of leap of imagination or faith in some of these things that make these decisions, I think, quite wild or difficult to comprehend. And I'd love your thoughts on that as we think through it. Well, I think the animal example is quite provocative, mainly because I really don't know what another human being thinks either. Certainly, mm -hmm. I don't know what a dog is thinking when, um, when I pass it on the street or if I had a dog if I came home to it. But that's true of you and me as well. Mm -hmm. you, know, you and I go to a play or a, a movie or we read a book and one of us is weeping at the end and the other is thinking what's wrong with him <laughs> mm -hmm. but imagining children is is different um i have given a number of examples in the book of how having a child changes who you are it changes what you care about it changes what gives you satisfaction it changes what you're afraid of um and it you can't anticipate that um, you could try. You can read a book about what it's like to be a parent. You can read a great novel about a, being a parent. There aren't very many. Uh, you can read a good novel, I think, about a marriage. Uh, but, but in general, uh, you have to make that leap. And I suggested, you know, in the book, you know, one of the, that raises the question. This is the first half of the book. The second half of the book is so now what? You know, what do you what do you do? Okay, so it's hard to make a rational decision. Mm -hmm. Still have to make a decision. Even if it's not to get married, that's a decision also. So how, how do you think about that in, in a thoughtful way? And one of the ways I answer that question is that what kind of life you want to leave, who, live, who you aspire to be uh, is affected by these decisions. And you should take that seriously. You should give it some thought. You shouldn't just jump uh, or not jump. You need to be self-aware. You need to think about the journey of your life and what's important to you. And you may not know what that is right now, and it may be different in 10 years or 20 years. So these are obviously, again, questions without simple answers. They're questions that human beings have struggled with for millennia. 
Um, but a leap of imagination is is not that helpful in many of these these situations. Hmm. You know, I write in the book about moving to Israel and becoming president of Shalem College, the only liberal arts college in Israel. Uh, on the surface, a, a crazy career change for me in the middle of a, you know, which should be the end, toward the end of my career. I'm, I think I moved, I was 67 years old, 66, 67, now 67, 68, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, I thought I had an idea of what it'd be like to live in Israel. I've visited here before a number of times, 10 times, 15 times. But it's different, very different to be an Israeli. It's different, which I did. I became an Israeli citizen. My wife and I both did, and it's um, it's very different. And it can't be. It can be imagined. That's it. That's a somewhat easier one, say, than having children. But as I, one of the other strategies I I suggest is to is to be respectful of of tradition. There are certain answers to these problems that tradition has has given human beings trying different things over much of, of our history doesn't mean you should do them uh, but you should take them seriously I would I would argue say marriage and children they're not for everybody but the fact that they've been part of the human experience for so long is uh, thought-provoking you should take it seriously can you talk a little bit more about this idea of making decisions based off who who you want to grow into or be in the future versus who you are now like how, how is that a framework to think about some of these wild problems? I think one of the, f there are a few things that come with age. Uh, one of the things that comes with age for many people is change. You can look back on what you were like when you were younger. I look back on my 20 year old self with a little bit of, of dismay and, and embarrassment and sometimes shame. Um, and I'm sure my 20 year old self would look at my 50-ish, my 67 year old self today and think, um, oh gosh, that's where I'm going. Mm. But I think thinking about that is, um, is very powerful. And I think uh, in economics, we're taught to satisfy our preferences as effectively as possible. But the idea that we might have preferences about our preferences is, is something that we rarely talk about in modern economics because it is mathematically very difficult, or if not intractable. So we take preferences as given. That's sort of the standard economist way of thinking about the world. That meaning that means you know what gives me pleasure and what causes me pain, and how much pleasure and how much pain. How much do I want to work versus sit around? How much do I want to spend in leisure? And what do I want to do in that leisure time? And what do I want to buy or joy, enjoy? And this other perspective, the one we're talking about, which is, uh, I think, the, the perspective that comes with, with, with age, is that uh, it's not just about what gives you pleasure. It's what do you want to want? Uh, you might want something now and realize, hmm, I wish I didn't want that. And it's true. It's very hard to change what we want. But I suggest some techniques in the, in the book for, for growing in that direction. But more importantly, I, I think it's just, it's important to think about what you might become. Uh, you might not be the best person right now that you can be. You might be selfish. You might be uh, uh, even cruel at times in indulging your own desires. And so this perspective we're talking about says, maybe I don't have to be this way. I could choose who I want to become. I don't have complete control over it. I may struggle to fulfill that, that uh, path, even though I, may, I might want to. But I think it's important to think about what the philosopher Agnes Callard calls aspiration. What do I aspire to be? Who do I want to become? 
And I think when you think in those terms, some of these decisions uh, uh, might get easier, uh, but it's a, if, if not, it's a different way of thinking about it that, uh, than the standard one we might use again from mm. economics. I'd love for you to provide any other uh, frameworks or tips on these really big decisions. Career, who am I going to become? Should I have kids? Should I get married? What else is in that book that can help us navigate some of these questions? First thing to say is that there's no magic formula. If you buy the book, it's not like, oh, now I know how to live. I'll just read the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, That's part of the theme of the book is that a lot of these questions don't have easy answers. Uh, And... I think that's useful. I think it's important to remember that there's often no right answer. Um, we're very afraid of regret. We're worried that if we make a choice and it's the wrong one, we will f- end up down a path that we can't uh, recover from. And there's some um, there's a risk of that, of course. Some of these decisions are somewhat irrevocable. Um, and if not irrevocable, they're hard to change or expensive to change. Um, I can move back to the United States if I want. It's not that wouldn't be easy. Um, again, I haven't. I made a leap across the uh, Atlantic, but it, it can be reversed. But it would be very costly for on many many dimensions. So a lot of times, that fear, that knowledge that we're making a big step that's going to define us, that's going to put us on a path in a certain direction, makes us uh, afraid. And I think one of the first things to recognize is that. Uh, we all make mistakes, uh, big mistakes, and you don't have to be afraid because there's no right answer. If there's no data, if there's no information, if there's no evidence that could be used in advance of a decision like this to make the right choice, the best choice, in what sense is it a mistake? It's mm-hmm. not a mistake. So I suggest to the reader to, to see your life as less of a path of perfection or maximization or optimization things these are words that are you know buzzwords for productivity and getting the most out of life a phrase i've used myself and now i think much a little bit look a little askance at if there isn't a best um she may be thinking of her life more as a, a work of art and less as a problem to be solved uh, 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 an equation to be maximized. And it kind of takes, for me anyway, I don't know if it works for everyone, but it takes some of the pressure off. You don't have to be so afraid of making what you might fear is a mistake that actually isn't even definable as a mistake in my view. It's okay, you'll learn from it. You'll see some territory you didn't expect to see. You'll have some adventures you didn't expect to have. And uh, you know, enjoy the journey. I use the metaphor of, of, of being a tourist. Some tourists make an intense itinerary to the to the hour where they're going to be, how long you're going to spend in this museum, uh, what time they're going to take the the train to the town an hour outside of the main city and see this special uh, forest that that's legendary and so on. And they they want to make sure they see everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a different attitude is to be uh, you know the French word is a flaneur. I'm going to explore. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to find what speaks to me. I'm going to taste uh, before I decide in advance what's going to be my, what's best for me. Mm. And life is inevitable. You, you, you might think you're a, that first kind of tourist with the itinerary. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to become a lawyer. Then I'll get married and I'll have two kids, one boy, one girl, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'll get a house. And, and I think that 
we can't help that kind of imagining. It's um, very human, and we may lay in bed at night and think we're planning that. But life comes along, and it doesn't work out that way often, maybe ever. It, it, there's always surprises. You find out you don't like law, <laughs> right? And you and, you, and you, can, you can quit being a lawyer. Many have. And it's, uh, it's liberating. Do something different. You can. And so I, you know, part of the book is to, is to liberate yourself from these kind of anxieties and fears that I think burden us unnecessarily, uh, especially when we're younger. Um, it's going to be okay. Yeah. It's really going to be okay. And it doesn't have to be perfect. That's okay, too. You talk about, uh, I think, a great but unlikely figure maybe in the world of philosophy, which is the football coach Bill Belichick. And I, I, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about him and, and maybe how he factors in to this book when it comes to decision-making or certainty or some of these big questions. Yeah, most people think Bill Belichick is a genius. Um, he's had a, a great, had a great run of success. Uh, he also had a great quarterback. Some people think That's it was Belichick. It was the quarterback. Tough question in a multifaceted world. Causation's always tricky. Correlation is not causation. But mostly would say he knows a lot about football. Uh, What's interesting about Belichick is that even though he knows a lot about football, he appears to be uh, somewhat uh, skeptical about his own ability, which is rare in people at that level of success. And I'm referring to a practice he has of often trading away a high draft pick from an early round for a number of draft picks in a later round. Mm. And, you know, this is my... um, speculation. I, I, I've not looked at it systematically, empirically, the way an economist normally would. I don't know if he does this more often than other coaches, but I've heard it suggested. He's, he's pretty good at, um, at cutting his losses as well and not dealing with sunk costs. Uh, happens to have been an economics major as an undergraduate at uh, Wesleyan, by the way. Hmm. So Belichick has this practice, and my claim is that the reason he does this occasionally is because he's aware of how poor a drafter he is. He does not draft particularly well. No one does. It's really hard to anticipate in advance uh, who's going to have a successful pro career. And the more interesting part is that it's very hard to predict in advance who's going to mesh well with your existing players, your particular culture of your team, your particular offensive or defensive philosophy. Now, you do a lot of research, gather a lot of data about these players because there's a lot of money at stake. And even so, there's an enormous number of mistakes that get made and disappointments. So my claim is is that Belichick understands that. He recognizes that in advance. And he compensates for that by uh, trying to find lots of players Mm -hmm. rather than the best ones. And you might say, well, how can anybody get lots of players? They all get one pick per round, more or less. Uh, And the answer is, well, he trades to sometimes get multiple picks later on which on the surface might not be as good. Wouldn't you want a better player from a higher round? But he recognizes that his ability to pick the best player is limited. He might, he's going to make mistakes. Not he might, he's going to make mistakes. And I think there's a lesson for us there. We're going to make mistakes. Right. Uh, what we learned from Belichick is to have lots of draft picks, <laughs> yeah. have lots of choices, lots of experiences, and figure out from that experience what speaks deeply to you, what direction do you want to head, what do you want to devote yourself to. Uh, and I think that's, uh, we earlier, earlier we talked about who do you want to become. 
one way you think about who you want to become is to try different things, is to not get stuck on one path. There are exceptions. Obviously, there are people who at, at 12 years old decide they want to be a doctor, and they end up being a doctor, and they love it, and right. God bless them. Most of us take a more wandering path. We're more like uh, Ulysses and less like... Um, I don't know who that is who doesn't get lost, but most of us gets most of us get lost. Yeah. I've been speaking with Russ Roberts. He's the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and author of Wild Problems, a guide to the decisions that define us. Russ, thanks for sharing your book with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was great talking to you. When we come back, is there an upside to uncertainty? We'll hear from an entrepreneur and how she reframes that argument. And a quick note to our Facebook group. We're getting close to 500 members, and we'd love if you can help us eclipse that number. What I've noticed is that the more members we have, the richer and more diverse the conversation becomes, especially around topics like mental health and healing. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back in a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Russ Roberts talk about decision-making and legendary coach Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, who gives up first-round draft picks, opting instead to have multiple picks later on. Quote, better to have lots of options and not stick to one path. So what more can we learn from innovators and entrepreneurs about embracing a level of uncertainty? How do we get comfortable with disappointment and failure? In her latest book, co-author Susanna Furr lays out a guide to tackling uncertainty and reframing problems as possibilities and opportunities. Furr is an entrepreneur and co-author with husband Nathan Furr. Their book is called The Upside of Uncertainty, a guide to finding possibility in the unknown. Susanna Furr, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. I, I love this topic of uncertainty because how how can we not face it just being human day to day in our big questions? And I I wonder what, what led you to this moment of wanting to explore some of these ideas in, in a much bigger way and, and write something uh, full about this? You know, I have been joined with Nathan for, this has been the question of our lives really. So we met at university as freshmen and loved researching things together, but ultimately uncertainty is really his academic question that he's been able to research in places, you know, like he did his PhD at Stanford. So he would always get to go and interview really cool, big name uh, entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos. And, you know, we he would come home and talk to me about it because ultimately, we both had this realization pretty young in our, you know, we were teenagers when we met, but that everything we cared about and were excited about and, and wanted to transform in our lives was going to only come after uncertainty. So when we are facing uncertainty, we're basically wired to hate it. And so we want to avoid it or, or kind of we, we even break down or just go the other way or we force outcomes, right, mm. that maybe aren't the best thing for us. I'm interested in what you said about this idea that, that we actually, we, we, 
we turn away from uncertainty. We're kind of hardwired to to dismiss it, to to move through it, to get over it. What did you mean by that? Can you say more? Yeah. So neuroscience shows us that we are actually wired to fear the unknown, and this makes sense when you think about, you know, our you know, thousands of years ago, our brains needed to be warning us like, oh, don't do that. You might die if you eat that berry or whatever. Ultimately, now we still have that wiring that's kind of can lead us to some maladaptive decisions where we just never try stuff because the wiring, it registers as no, don't do it. And, you know, really, there are other um, social science research to kind of show that people always choose something when framed as a gain, even if it's statistically the same as something as a loss. So there was a famous study done by Kahneman and Tversky where there was a cure and it was framed as 95% success rate or 5% failure. And everyone was like, yeah, we'll take the one with the 95% you know, chance of success. So knowing that about ourselves, we are wired. We are, we, no one really like says, oh, I, I love uncertainty and I don't feel anything scary about it. A lot of entrepreneurs do say, Oh, I love uncertainty. And then when you dig down, it is, but I do all this stuff to make it more certain in my regular life. Mm. I, 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 I kind of hedge myself with some things that are comforting or rituals or any number of things. Were there ever any personal moments in your life where you felt this, this kind of call of uncertainty and began to wonder, how is it that I'm going to make it through this? I have had so many moments of of groundlessness where I didn't know if I should do something. And that's that's gonna have shown up for me when I decided to do a clothing line. I had three little kids and Nathan had just started his PhD at Stanford and we were very, we had we were living on student loans of like one stipend with a family of, of five. And then I got pregnant and I had just started my clothing line. So I, and then I got put on bed rest. So then I was like, wait, do I get to do the clothing line? And Nathan was so pulled in different ways. And ultimately, I had to take a break because I had, I couldn't go around. I was grounded to a halt. But the minute I, after my baby was born and I, I got to think, now, do I want to do this? And everything around me was saying, no way, you don't even have really any money. You know, your kids need you. Nathan's doing his PhD. You really need to support him. But there was this moment of clarity when I used a tool that, you know, was something that came out of the research of entrepreneurs, and in particular, Jeff Bezos, was, was this idea of regret minimization of, you know, will, what will I regret when I'm 80? And I remember the moment where I was writing in my journal, like, should I wait and do this clothing line when my kids are raised? And I had this newborn, and I remember looking at myself in the mirror, it was across from me at my table, and I was like, no, I knew I would regret it. I knew I would regret not trying. And ultimately, I did that for about four years. And then there was this moment when I knew, and now I'll regret if I don't stop doing this. Mm-hmm. So the beauty about uncertainty to me is it's something that can be like a muscle where when you can reframe the fear and that wiring we talked about and see it as this is normal, this is my brain that's scared and it's doing its job, but ultimately I want to see what possibility is waiting for me on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I wanna to get to that possibility because I know it's there. And and ultimately we have this first aid cross that we use that kind of anchors all the tools. And I could talk about that if that would be helpful. Yeah, I'd love to get that to that in just one second, but you used a phrase that caught my attention as well, which is this idea of regret minimization. That That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so basically it's one of the tools that we use in the reframing 
arm of the Red Cross or First Aid Cross for Uncertainty. So we have four different categories of tools because there are 30, more than 30 tools. Mm. And the first one is this idea of how can you reframe this wiring and this this real stressful feeling about uncertainty into one that's more optimistic, one that sees, oh my gosh, I have to go through this. This is just the portal to something I want. And so the regret minimization tool is about embracing that you're gonna feel weird, that you're gonna be stressed, but using regret and kind of even fast forwarding yourself to an age, you could do at age 80. I mean, that's what Jeff Bezos actually did. But you can even do in five years, will, what will I be sad that I didn't try? And, you know, sometimes it's good because you realize, you know what, I will regret if I try this and it fails, so I shouldn't do it. But when you get to the moment of, I won't regret trying and failing, then you've got to go for it, even if you feel stressed, because it's it's the failure that if you know you're going to be really mad if it fails, that you probably, yeah, you're not ready to take on that uncertainty. But one that you know you'll regret is it's a scary one because you should go for it. Right. So that's that's one of the tools. Let's keep going through the cross you mentioned. What what are some of the other kind of foundational uh, tools you can share with us? If you think about looking at a cross, the north and south poles are really cognitive in nature. So they're the things that keep grind, grind, you know bringing us back to a a sense of firm. Um, like where our possibility is not feeling threatened. So reframing is where we remind ourselves, okay, this is the portal, this is natural, I'm gonna feel stressed and scared, but the unknown always feels that way and possibilities on the other side. On the south um, of that arm is sustain. And sustain is similar to reframe, but it's really for those moments when it feels like it's failing or it's not going well. Or maybe you need to change course and you're just you're just trying to figure out how but you're flailing so sustain is also more cognitive in nature and it has different tools that we can talk about in a second but then i'll I'll move to that west east axis of the of the first aid cross because it's more the doing phase and we talked about um how you can prepare yourself we call it priming so that left part is prime tools and i love that word because when you think about preparing when we prime a wall to paint it. We, it's like we put down a, f- a preliminary layer. And so prime tools are all around this idea of self-knowledge. It's kind of knowing who you are, knowing about your risk affinities and aver- and um, aversion. So there's like a riskometer you can take so that you're kind of ready when uncertainty faces to know like, oh, this is going to be triggering for me, but I can actually handle this kind of risk over here. Um, it's also, you know, they're just a really great toolkit for getting ready for the doing phase, which is on that right-hand side of the cross of uncertainty and the the doing is really about you know really the best way to resolve uncertainty is to start taking action but if we can do it in some new ways which which involves things like being more cognitively flexible so you know not just racing out and doing oh i know what works i'm going to crank this in but being open to the fact that gosh i might need to ask people i might need to do this differently or another do tool is acting from values versus goals. So mm. really getting clear um, and aligned with things that you know will matter to you. Even if they go wrong, you won't feel frustrated because it's like you didn't sell out. When we do uncertainty with our values, it's more the outcomes are always going to be good, even if it doesn't turn out how we thought. And then one one big part of this you mentioned is the kind of doing phase. And and you said something that, that jumped out to me as well, which mm-hmm. is that sometimes when we face great uncertainty, we feel paralyzed. 
it's it's just hard to know what to do. And, and you talked about the importance of kind of just getting going, doing something concrete. And I wonder if you could spend a little more time talking about that, because I think for some, that can actually be the hardest point. Yeah, it's so hard. And again, from the, the research on entrepreneurs and how they should innovate, often we think we have to go in all at once and we have to just crank it out. And, and actually, that's not true. So they did studies of different companies where some would kind of do what you could think of like a chef, a master chef who perfects a dish kind of to a point and then puts it on a back burner. And so let yourself take small steps. Let yourself just focus on, okay, what can I do today and not worrying about all of it at once. So that would be one example. Another thing that I really love is this idea of cognitive flexibility. It comes from an idea that actually, again, a researcher studied a a forest fire. So this forest fire happened in Montana and it was kind of a a time of where they had they had started to use um, these fire jumpers that would be like helicopter parachute down and ultimately everything went wrong with this fire they thought they were going to be able to put it out really quickly but the wind picked up and the fire jumped a ridge and so these firefighters now were stuck between like where the fire was coming up behind them and where they had planned to go with our exit route and their the the head fire chief he said drop your tools and lie down in the ashes. We're going to make a fire. It was basically what now is called an escape fire, and it's known. But these people were so terrified, and it's, it didn't make sense to drop the tools. That's always what you use to fight the fire. So basically everybody died except this this gentleman who knew this would work, and he was able to create this little safety fire around him, and he put his fire blanket over him, and he lived. But he went on to show that in moments of uncertainty and stress, we, we have these things that happen to us like um, threat rigidity or, you know, we, we kind of wire down and just try to f- force through what we know. And so sometimes with uncertainty, you actually have to stop and think, wow, what am I not seeing here? And get curious and ask a lot of questions. So doing under uncertainty is really kind of, again, it's this moment that feels counterintuitive because you want to just start cranking stuff out. But it is a time of really thinking about, okay, is there something I'm not seeing? Can I do this even sl- more slowly or at least with more thoughtfulness? Mm-hmm. Interesting, the, the idea of how one makes decisions in these critical moments of uncertainty. I mean, they could be life-threatening like the one you mentioned or more existential. And it makes me think again of, of someone you referenced earlier, Daniel Kahneman, this idea of thinking fast or thinking slow. How do mm-hmm. we... Uh, sometimes just come up with these gut reactions or take that second to be more analytical and thoughtful in our approach. And so um, I, I'm hearing the second part of that is maybe where you're getting at, the the more thoughtful, contemplative part. Whenever we can add time to something, it's great. But another thing we can ask ourselves is, you know, is this, is this a decision that ha- is a one-way door, meaning that if I go through it, I can't get back out? Hmm. Um, or is it a two-way door? Because when there are experiments available to us, then we shouldn't be as afraid of trying it a lot. In fact, one of my favorite do tools we call 10,000 Shots, and it's about this idea that before we had digital cameras, when National Geographic set out uh, photographers on, you know, assignment, they would give them 10,000 film like photos you know rolls of film I don't know how many rolls that would be but enough to take 10,000 pictures for maybe only six to eight that they would use and it's this idea that we feel like we need to be able to do something in one shot 
or one try. And when we have to try four times or something, most of us give up. We think, oh, I guess I'm not really good at that. And so with uncertainty, when we can, be ready to try a lot. But like you said, if it's life or death, I think there are some really, um, it's very powerful to still try to get as as calm as you can and really, again, align with um, what is your value? What do I know? And maybe still ask yourself, am I forcing this? What I've done before, is there another way? And mm-hmm. get help, you know? Mm-hmm. We, can, we can reach out to people hopefully around us to help get their idea. I wonder too um, if you've thought about if there's any any differences when we consider gender in this topic. I mean, speaking to a woman here, and the idea that so many women uh, deal with the pressure of careers versus raising kids, and maybe a difficult time getting back into a career, or these really big questions of sacrifice. Um, I think there's lots of uncertainty in all of that. Did did that ever kind of come up when you were thinking about some of these questions? Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I would actually say I don't think the gender thing plays out really with uncertainty in terms of, you know, one gender is better at it than another. Not at all. But I will say as a, as a as someone who took a break or actually never had a fully regular career and ultimately when I did want to get involved with things, it was really hard for me because I did have a lot of um, just stuff to learn quickly, but also a sense of some self-doubt. And this is something I love to talk about because we share, it's actually one of the reframe tools too, because a lot of times people think that they're, you know, or imposter syndrome, they'll say, oh my gosh, if people knew what I really was doing, they would not want to listen to me or they wouldn't think I'm great. And ultimately, everybody does this. So Nobel Prize winners, great scientists, we all are afraid and we all feel scared. And it's part of that wiring again. And anyway, this idea of when we do whatever we're faced with, with a consistent version of just ourself, like bringing ourselves to it and just saying, what can I do here? What, what can I offer? We don't have as much self-doubt. And I can say this from experience because I've, I've, I've been uh, joining Nathan on so many platforms and things that are really out of my league. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, and I, but I'm a designer and a creative more. I'm not a business person. I don't have an MBA. But whenever I remind myself, oh, yeah, I just get to be me and show up with my excitement for this topic and my energy for really wanting to help people face uncertainty and navigate it well, then I'm not stressed because I think a lot of times our self-doubt comes from thinking, oh, my gosh, am I going to remember that one thing I have to say and in this way? Don't try to act like you're someone that you're not. No one needs that. If we can be true to ourselves and show up with with the thing we have which is why they're asking us to do something in the first place, then we're really relaxed and able to do it. I remember this very specifically in my own life when I was training to become a psychotherapist. And many young therapists, they're they're suddenly placed in a room with a real client, and there's a very profound sense of imposter syndrome. You think, oh my gosh, what, what am I doing suddenly thinking that I have the skills or the experience to help this human being coming to me in this moment of honesty and vulnerability. And, you know, we were taught just over and over again that, hey, you're not expected to know everything or have every diagnosis. You've been taught these 10 things. Use them. Don't pretend that you know more than them. And those 10 things Mm -hmm. are going to be enough to get you through a session. And it just took time, I think, to believe in that. But I think to get back to what you're saying 
the problem comes when you project this idea that you know more than you do or you are more than you are. And I think there's a real humbleness and humility when you say, this is what I can offer and it's going to be enough. And I think that's a really hard thing for a lot of people. I love how you use that personal example. And I can only imagine that would be a really stressful scenario to feel that because yeah, people are coming to you in such a time of need. I will say the two examples we use for people who had tremendous self-doubt that we would never imagine were John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. You can check it out online. Just Google his journal while he wrote that every day. He was kind of tortured. He did not believe he should be the one writing that important story. He knew it was critical to tell it, but he would say, he would write things like, Everyone thinks I'm a writer, but I'm not. I mean, it's almost funny because it's so self, you know, just there's, anyway, it ended up being what his research that that uh, landed him the Nobel Prize. There's so much self-doubt there. So this idea again of, yeah, we're gonna feel it. What do you do with it? Are you gonna let it stop you? Or are you gonna really just trust, I'm here, I have some stuff and start from there. I've been speaking with Susanna Furr, entrepreneur and co-author with Nathan Furr of The Upside of Uncertainty, a guide to finding possibility in the unknown. Susanna, thanks for chatting with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this week. You've been listening to Life Examined right here on your public radio station, KCRW. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. You can find us online at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. You'll also find the link there to join our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.